I think there should be an environmental shift on social media. And I think it's going to happen anyway, which is just the idea that fans not only should be more forgiving, but they should actually take up more space mm -hmm. in times like this. Hey, streamers and dreamers. My name is Kika Lomo, and you are listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, November 2nd, and this is your weekly update on music, culture, and what's next. What a time to be online. Social media has created an environment where we all feel the need not to just have opinions, but to share them. This is on top of social media being a key platform for artists to promote themselves, sometimes directly affecting income and opportunities. In the wake of political, ecological and economical crises, posting on social media can feel conflicting, especially if you feel like you have to post. Artists in this day and age are pretty much professionally obliged to use social media to promote their work. And while that might have nothing to do with the current political crises or ongoing war, there is often expectations for artists to speak out on those issues too. If artists do take positions, they could face backlash. If they don't, there might be even bigger consequences. It's a topic I've thought and talked about a lot recently with my co-host Otto. So we decided to make it a topic of discussion for this week's Deep Dive. Hello, Otto. Hello. How are you? I, I have coffee. Yeah, that's, that's, that's always a good start. Always a good start. Thanks for joining us today again. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm not even I'm sure, I know that you have a lot of thoughts on this specific discussion. How are you kind of dealing with um, dealing with these pressures and discussions? Well, I'm actually in the thick of helping promote an album right now. I'm in an album promotion cycle for a label I work for. So this topic is is just in front of my everyday because it's very difficult to figure out how to promote someone's music that isn't necessarily directly addressing a political crisis. So that's one. And number two is just uh, feeling a little bit defeated. Defeated that uh, after all this time of uh, supporting being an artist and supporting artists, that I see artists really struggling, not only because of the cost of living crisis that we're living in, but also just a lot of infighting happening again around really, really, really difficult discussions that mm. are very, very, very rooted in um explanations that go back maybe 40 years there's just mm. there's a lot of stuff to to learn about first before you decide to say something and seeing a lot of people trip over their words who are just making cool music and art mm -hmm. so yeah do you do you feel like there is an obligation for artists to speak up on these things and do you, do you think we should be speaking up on these things so I might take <laughs> I may take the devil's advocate approach today and and be no, not so popular as to say that not everyone should feel obligated to post online um, during a political crisis uh, and that I have a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the things that, you know, when people evaluate whether artists should be posting and what they should be posting, whether they should, they should continue as business as usual, whether they should be like highlighting different perspectives and feeding into the information or sometimes in misinformation that spreads online. A lot of people say, you know, keep the politics out of dance music, keep the politics out of the club, keep the politics off the dance floor. But for me, I always find those arguments quite redundant because politics is integral to the evolution and creation actually of of 
dance music and music in general, all types of music, you know. So um, I, I'm always a little bit apprehensive that those um, attempts to dismiss people's perspectives. Um, I guess where I'm struggling at is, you know, I'm I'm quite vocal online about things that I believe in. I mean, social media is an incredible tool for informing people, also galvanizing people behind movements, um, also connecting with communities as well. Um, I'm sure everyone remembers the whole 2020 Black Square thing. <laughs> um, and I bring up this example because for me, the Black Square was an example of social media's failure, actually. It was very virtue signally. Um, if you didn't know, this was um, in 2020 when um, George Floyd was murdered. Um, there were all these, you know, companies, uh, celebrities and your everyday Joe posting up a black square on Instagram to say that they don't condone racism. Um, and um, I remember the company at the time that I was working for also posted it and everyone was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so proud to work here that, you know, we're taking a stand against racism. And me, you know, as I say, I'm quite vocal. I like, I called out the company on Slack. Well, not necessarily called out. It was more eloquent than that and more strategic <laughs> than that. And I think this is also what it's going to come down to, which is strategy. So for me, and you know, you can tell me if you disagree with this, when I, the, the, the perspective that I'm trying to take now is um, strategic when I post on social media, instead of just doing something that's virtual signaling, saying, oh, this is how I feel, like this is how I want to be perceived to be, you know, anti-racism, anti-whatever, um, or pro-whatever, uh, there has to be an action associated with that. Social media doesn't go far enough in my perspective, unless, you know, it's posting about, I don't know, a gathering, a protest, um, a, a way to petition people, um, your government officials to get in contact with your government representatives. When it's derived or connected to an action, I think that's that's something. But the, the 2020 Black Square fad for me was virtual signaling because there wasn't any action that's surrounded by that. People were just using it as a way to absolve themselves from difficult conversations. And I think this is where a lot of the struggle comes as an artist because, yeah, I have I have Instagram posts and, you know, promotional stuff waiting as well. But sometimes it can feel like uh, there's like a cognitive dissonance of like, OK, like, let me post about coming in, like shaking a little ass in this club, like where I'm playing at. But then also, you know, there's so much conflict and so much division going on that it feels almost like you're ignoring it in a way. Um, and then. You know, there's, there's this post that was written by Nima Gutierrez. I hope I'm pronouncing their name right. Uh, and it's entitled, um, A Micro-Influencer's Guide to Being on the Right Side of History. Now, obviously, caveating this with this is her perspective. Um, you know, whether you believe, whatever you believe is the right or wrong side of history, this is her perspective. But I think there's some really interesting um, points that come from this post. She quotes this point of Toni Morrison, where Toni Morrison said that she didn't go to any marches, she didn't go, any, go to anything or join anything. But as an editor... Um, Toni Morrison could make sure that there was a published record of all those who did march and did put themselves on the line. Cultural work matters, as Andre 3000 said, play your part, play your part. Um, and the post essentially challenges everyone to invest time and attention towards thinking about the most strategic way to distribute information via their platforms. Um, you know, how to hack 
Instagram features and algorithmic roadblocks to um, to most meaningfully contribute to various struggles? How do you do you understand your audience, what information they already have and what information they may need exposure to? Um, and how do you aim to influence people to engage with your platform, to seek out information of their own or to participate in direct action? And so I think sometimes when we feel this pressure and, and the post also acknowledges like processes like these can be clumsy, you know, she says clumsiness is inevitable. It can and will and should be uncomfortable to embark on the challenge of diversifying from your own digital or professional persona. But it's essentially advocating for using platforms as a way of meaningful change. And I, I think I agree with it. But at, that's, at the same time, is every artist obliged to do so? Because at the end of the day, as you say, there's a cost of living crisis, right? So, uh, you know, money and livelihood is at stake. Yeah, I think <laughs> uh, there's so much to unpack here. Yeah. I I want to start by saying that post says micro influencer in its title, yeah. right? And what does that mean? And and I really wanted to come on the show today to remind listeners and fans. I am a music fan first and foremost, and even today I've become more a fan than I have someone who's trying to like talk about art I've made or be in the driving seat as a culture maker. As a micro-influencer, I think this is targeting the idea that the social media active person who is potentially a music fan needs to really look in the mirror as to what power that they have and not only the power that they have over the artists that they're supposed to be paying because they appreciate their work, going out to their concerts, cheering for them, liking their posts, but also uh, the power that they have as an influencer over certain circles of people and the ways in which the tools of social media are there for them to be active. Mm. And there's a lot of passive consuming, and I would say that there's a certain amount of witch huntery that happens in these particular periods that is directed towards people with bigger audiences mm -hmm. who have a lot more potentially at stake. But I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors right now for fans as to how much work it takes to make any money, to make your money back, even mm -hmm. the investments that artists are making to just be seen to the point where that they can get a show. It's a really, really difficult road. And to expect artists to risk all of that because you aren't considering your micro-influence is is just it's just kind of over. I'm done with it. So this is this is you saying that the passive consumers, aka the fans of these artists, also have micro influence that they can also be using and directing their attention towards, as opposed to coming after artists with potentially bigger platforms to, that align with their political stance as well. And you're saying that people, correct me if I'm wrong, people should be focused on their own actions as opposed to coming after artists to speak up. I think there should be an environmental shift on social media, and I think it's going to happen anyway, which is just the idea that fans not only should be more forgiving, but they should actually take up more space mm -hmm. in times like this. And I also feel like that fans should look to the strategy of what musicians and art can do but the timeline to create those things. Mm -hmm. And the most famous songs of protest movements or 
from the Beatles to Stevie Wonder's song about apartheid, those didn't happen like days after the news broke of a crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the the manager of the Beatles kept them from saying anything against Vietnam for like three or four years, and then he died, and then the next year they put revolution on their record, mm. and they wanted to say something that entire time, but there was pressures as to to what would happen, and those all come from industry, and those all come from fans. Mm. And from the artist's perspective, what what do you think the artist's job should be? I think that the artist should consider what it is that their artist story is about. What is their audience reacting to? Mm-hmm. So earlier we were talking about like big pop artists that like make you know lyrics and big pop songs that say absolutely nothing mm-hmm. that we love. Mm-hmm. Should those artists out of nowhere create an opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, no. Should they support what is right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Should they signal to their fans that they're doing that or not? I honestly think that's up to the artists. I don't expect giant pop stars that have never had a political point of view to all of a sudden overnight do that. When they do, I'm stoked. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But like, for example, I look at some of the artists that I feel like have shaped this um, generation's political outview towards queerness and transness. Mm -hmm. And I don't see a lot of them making a stand right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a problem with that because they're already changing the world. Mm -hmm. They've already done so much more than most artists. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I love it. I love it when an artist like makes a song or really like comes out of nowhere and is like, yo, I believe in this Mm -hmm. and you should too. But I don't fault an artist for not doing that. Okay, interesting. I mean, I guess they're like playing devil's advocate here. (laughs) There there are people who would argue that there is a responsibility if you have a platform um, and you can reach a lot of people to use it. And that's something something that I have experienced also recently and with some of the stuff that I've been sharing online. um, I was like, okay, you know, but is there any point in me doing this? Like, what what am I trying to achieve with this? And I had some messages from people being like, hey, like, you're the only person that I see speaking up about this and thank you for saying something. And it made me realize that everyone's algorithms everyone's audiences are different and so I think the real uh, responsibility and you know potential danger comes with making sure that the information you share is first of all true and correct and you know I think there's also a difference between sharing information and between sharing opinion you know what I mean Um, I think you know everyone's entitled to share their opinion you know people should be made aware of the consequences Um, I think what I'm seeing a lot online right now is a lot of misinformation a lot of propaganda a lot of um, a lot of opinion Um, and you know it's hard to actually because this is one of the things I also had to take time luckily um, I think it was like a godsend from the universe Um, my phone broke for like three days last week so I was like completely offline and it just like gave me a lot of time to think and like I also wasn't engaging because you can kind of get through this like doom scrolly area of where you know where you're constantly consuming content your algorithm picks up on that so you're shown more and more doom doom doom-esque content and it kind of feels like a bit of a downward spiral and and one of the approaches that I've taken is like okay I want to post something let me take 24 hours to think about what I actually want to post because it kind of like almost rids yourself of this like emotional reaction which in a lot of cases the emotional reaction is completely valid (laughs) but um, yeah it's just about to be more considerate like to have more consideration for the impact of what you're sharing and also I guess for me as a as a trained scientist I'm going to claim that (laughs) that university degree there's a lot of um 
importance in making sure that your sources are reputable or understanding what biases your sources may have and the impacts of what you may be fueling, you know, like, so for me, a lot of the stuff that I, that I share, as I mentioned, is driven towards action. Okay. Like how can you help? And also information that I don't see be sh being shared by um, mainstream media that comes from reliable sources. Um, yeah, I, I think there, there is um, a power in sharing on social media, but you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. So, yeah. I also wanted to share, I listened to this Slate podcast that was talking about um, the responsibilities of people and whether or not they should be posting online or not. Mm -hmm. And there were some interesting takeaways from it. And one of them was, for me, while I was listening to it, I was like, I have plenty of friends who just delete Instagram. Yeah. You know, they don't have it. And I know artists, it's not, not that many, yeah. not that many artists that, that delete it. I'm so and, jealous. <laughs> and then I thought about all the artists that don't actually run mm -hmm. their own Instagrams. And this is like a mental health issue. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, a lot of artists are just, that's just not, they're not good at it. Mm -hmm. They're, they might not be um, trained copywriters. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're expression of their art is often more eloquent than the expression of their word. Mm -hmm. And the pressures around that is just paramount these days because specifically Instagram, now that <laughs> Twitter has taken the, d the dump. Mm -hmm. Sorry, X. <laughs> X is taking the dump. There's, it's all become really focused on one platform yeah. that rewards people for certain behaviors. And so, for example, like, I'm sure people are noticing if they are having um, discussions on their wall or on their stories and they have metrics to look at, it changes the way you you do your day. Mm -hmm. And it changes your mental health. It changes your perspective on mm -hmm. like what your investment is in on something. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that stuff needs to be just taken into consideration. And I, I really wish that the takeaway from this would be that... <laughs> that music fans and producers of art and art fans need other spaces to mm -hmm. um, enjoy the promotion of those things. Yeah. Separated from these spaces that we talk about, these um, giant political conflicts. Mm -hmm. I think there's also this element of uh, understanding how to post around social media because, um, you know, there are, you know, we touched on it lightly, but there can be consequences for saying certain things. You know, mm -hmm. you've seen people been be cancelled. You've seen people lose out on opportunities. I've saw it, seen it just in the past week. People's shows be cancelled for saying certain things. Um, and I guess that also comes down to, as an artist, what your personal uh, um, appetite for risk is. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I kind of go about, um, as I say, you know, trying to make sure that I'm sharing facts, um, also trying to make sure that I can cite my sources and make sure that they're reliable sources or, you know, if they're not necessarily reliable sources, highlighting that. Um, but I think one of the best things to be is just to be honest. You know what I right. mean? Like I had this point where I was like promoting an event, but then also sharing some information about um, political engagements and whatnot. I saw and that it, post. You know? I love that post. <laughs> yeah. And like, it was just like one, one, one was like, yeah, come to this party. And then I was like, you should be doing this. And then I just did a post. I was like, yo, like, this is messing with my brain right now. Like the, right. Uh, the I can't deal with the cognitive dissonance of trying to promote this event and also posting about this political matter that I really care about. So I'm going to just try and separate the two. And I think the response I got from that was really good because I think 
if you're honest about, you know, going through it, because I think one of the other things that also social media does is it puts you on this platform. It puts you on a pedestal. It almost like dehumanizes you in a way that people forget that you're actually just a person right. like going through life the way that they are. Um, and so just kind of like highlighting that as an artist, when if you do want to speak up about certain things and to say, hey, like, you know, I know I'm an artist, but like this is really important to me and I want to share this. May not get it right 100 percent of the time, but this is my intention. I think I think there's power to that, you know. I want to say, like, when you brought up the black squares and you called it um, a failure, mm-hmm. and I I find it to be a really beautiful failure because of the amount of discourse that came out of it. Yeah. And today, the discourse that you and I are having and a lot of the discourse that's happening online around um, whether or not you should be saying something if silence is, is an action um, against or for, these are the conversations that change people for a long time. I'm just happy that at least the discourse is free in some respect, mm-hmm. at least in the places that we live. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I just had a wonderful time having this conversation with you today, <laughs> opening you. up, letting some of this stuff <laughs> off our chest. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't feel like, um, you know, sometimes when I wonder we have those conversations, it's like, okay, is there a direct action point that should come from this? But I feel like just speaking up about, you know, the problems that are that are driving these discourses, discourse I, <laughs> discourses, <laughs> um, can help people with their own processes into deciding what they want to do and what's the appropriate course of action. But also to lend some perspective, you know, it, it's always good. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now let's dive into the other headlines that mattered this week. A refugee camp as a casting show. We all know that the fashion industry can be exploitative. But a recent investigation by the Sunday Times has shown a new level of cold-blooded behaviour by some of the top fashion labels in the recruit of models. The investigation revealed that some of the biggest brands are looking for new faces in one of the biggest refugee camps in the world, the Kakuma refugee camp in the northwestern region of Kenya. And before you say, oh, how nice of them, the system is actually incredibly sinister. In the camp, local scouts search for talent and send photos to bosses in Europe. More than half of the almost 300,000 people in the camp are from South Sudan, the poorest country on the planet, where civil and tribal warfare have killed and displaced millions. Agencies have said recruiting models from the camp gives the refugees a better chance in life, while also making runways more diverse. It's a good story for them, but it's a less happy ending for most of the models. The Sunday Times interviewed dozens of people from the camp, some who were already working in Europe with some success, and others who returned to Kenya having made no money at all. One teenage model described how she was discovered at the camp, then was flown to Paris, where she was deemed too malnourished to work, and was flown back to Kenya after just six days. Others said they signed contracts they barely understood, and after returning home even had to pay debts to their agencies. This summer, the British agency Isis Models even hosted an event called Africa's Next Supermodel in a hotel right next to the refugee camp. It's an absurd and scary story, and I recommend reading the whole article as a long read. You can find the link in our show notes. UMG invests in NTS. In July, an email was sent out to paid supporters of NTS Radio that casually shared a surprising announcement. The influential UK radio station, which was based in London but has a global reach, accepted long-term funding from Universal Music Group. That means that one of the so-called big three major labels, which controls about 30% of the global market share for recorded music, now has a stake in one of independent radio's most significant brands. 
The announcement was short on details, but assured supporters that the station would remain fully independent and that UMG had no control over the operation. What music gets played or which artists get airtime? Not much more info was given, but last week, friend of the podcast, Sean Ronaldo, reported more details for the first time. In his first floor newsletter, Ronaldo shared filings from the UK government office company's house showing that Universal hadn't just invested, but was in fact a person with significant control of NTS. Other NTS investors include people like Peter Gabriel and Primavera Sound Music Festival. But UMG now appears to be the station's largest shareholder, purchasing shares worth approximately £5 million for a 25% stake. We've seen what happens when companies play games with platforms that feel important to independent artists and labels. It was less than a year between Bandcamp being sold to Epic Games, then sold again to Songtrader, and then cutting the workforce in half. So forgive us for being a little cynical about the eventual outcome of this UMG investment in NTS. And even if NTS can't survive long term without this cash injection, this highlights just how difficult it is today for independent cultural organisations to survive and thrive without corporate support. Not a good sign now or ever. Meta Lawsuits If you have little siblings or kids of your own, you'll have seen how social media impacts their lives. But we're only just starting to scratch the surface in understanding to what extent social media and its twisted reward systems have rewired our brains. Now, a class action lawsuit by 33 US states wants legal consequences for the companies that they say are responsible for that rewiring. Colorado and California are leading the lawsuit, filed against Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, claiming that the company designs and releases harmful features that addict children and teens. Eight additional states filed their own lawsuits on the same day with the same claims, saying that Meta, quote, designed psychologically manipulative product features to induce young users' compulsive and extended use of the platforms, end quote. These kind of class action lawsuits in the US are usually used to fight big tobacco or big pharma, and now big tech is in the sights. This is happening in parallel to different states investigating TikTok for similar reasons, and they seem to be standing on solid ground, given how much even our adult brains are manipulated by things like the infinite scroll and discourse dopamine. Love to see that we're not the only ones encouraging you to stop scrolling. Reducing music tech emissions. The ongoing conversations about sustainability are essential in the music industries or otherwise. Most people are now more aware of the environmental costs of constant touring, pressing and shipping vinyl, and even the massive servers needed by streaming services. But a recent piece by Attack Mag's Adam Douglas looked in a different direction, at the sustainability goals of music tech companies like Roland and Focusrite. It's challenging for these companies to reduce their emissions, which are calculated as three different categories. Scope 1 emissions are generated directly by the company. Scope 2 are emissions created by the power purchased by the manufacturer. And Scope 3 includes all emissions from the manufacturing process of the company's suppliers too. For a company like Focusrite to reach net zero carbon emissions, they need to analyse their use of recycled materials, logistics inefficiencies, supply chain and even a product's power consumption. According to Andy Land, the head of sustainability at Focusrite, almost 100% of the 2022 emissions across a product range of 300 plus items were scope 3, which are also the hardest emissions to control. But they're taking positive steps, including the formation of a group called Greening Music Tech. That group includes members from 17 different companies with the likes of Native Instruments and DNB working on collective improvements to benefit the entire music hardware industry. It's a difficult effort, but truly the least that they can do. 
I'm also actively trying to stop scrolling, which means that I've been reading a lot of books recently, although probably still not enough. I actually have a fun fact from this week's recommendation. Did you know that if human beings didn't evolve to become bipedal creatures, so that's walking on two feet, we one, wouldn't have developed a sense of rhythm, and two, our vocal cords wouldn't have dropped to enable us to communicate or sing with each other. If you're interested by these facts, or generally interested in the ways that music connects with us as human beings, our origin story on this planet, and how society has evolved, I can highly recommend the book The Musical Human by Michael Spitzer. Quote, With insights from a wealth of disciplines, he renders a global history of music on the widest possible canvas, looking at music in our everyday lives, music in world history, and music in evolution, from insects to apes, humans to AI. Taking us on an exhilarating journey across the ages, the musical human is a dazzling exploration of the vibrant relationship between music and the human species. End quote. And if you haven't quite managed to get your brain in gear to process pages and pages of info, it's also available as an audiobook. You can find the link to the book in the show notes. That's all for the week this week. Thank you for locking in. We'll be back here next Thursday. Take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories.